Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. My name is Jeff and I'm joined, as always, by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael, they vie for the frontman status in this band that we call Mount Rushmore. They're both incredibly talented, incredibly enigmatic, and at some point we're going to have to decide who stays and who goes or who's going to be the prominent voice and the leader in this act mm. and who's going to hit the dust or go <laughs> on to a solo career. Uh, we are discussing this episode, the Mount Rushmore of Replacement Singers. Is this uh, your category, Richard, and did I express it correctly, the title? You did. Um, thank you for not uh, saying it as Replacements okay, Singers, because yeah. there's only <laughs> been one, and that would be a really short episode. Plus, yeah. I think we've, we've, we've kind of drubbed the replacements into the ground. No, I came up with this one. Um, I was uh, thinking about, I think I was reading some article where they talked about a band that had a replacement singer and what happened to the band afterward. And yeah. it just got me thinking about the long and sometimes glorious and sometimes not history of bands having to replace their front men. Yeah. Or front women, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, I was wondering, why isn't this topic the Mount Rushmore replacement drummers or bassists or uh, uh, touring keyboard players, and is it because <laughs> of the the unique position that a lead singer has within the uh, combo musical outfit? Yeah, I mean, they are the ones who are front and center. I mean, they literally are the voice of the band. So I think that, you know, maybe a discerning ear can tell the difference between a certain guitar player's tone and a replacement guitar player, but look, everyone knows when you got a new singer. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we just uh, jump right in? Richard's topic means that Michael will start. Mr. Winfield, go for it. Well, I'm going to start with a uh, really obvious choice, and that was um, Van Halen when um, David Lee Roth was replaced by Sammy Hagar, who was then replaced by David Lee Roth, who was replaced by Gary Gary uh, Chiron, yeah. Uh, to only be have a reunion with Sammy Hagar, and then to have um, David Lee Roth come back, which uh, I apparently <laughs> still continues to this day. Yeah. That I didn't even know that Van Halen was still a thing. Yeah, um, this is this is also on my list. And by the way, Michael, we were discussing before the episode. I I had said there was one I thought about not including, and the reason was it was such the obvious choice. But here we are. But yeah, I you know I think I think they are the quintessential. Um, who is the band? Who is the version of the band that you want to hear? Uh, uh, which which one of the shitty musicians do you want to hear singing shittily uh, for Van Halen? Who is a band that I just I could not care about any less, and I could even less so care about who sings for them? You know, David Lee Roth was kind of always this seemingly super shitty person the very much the classic um <laughs> oh too much he was like you know bigger than the band and thought he was bigger than the band and went out and did a cover of just a gigolo yeah. <laughs> and it's like that was your that was your big that's what you thought would shoot to number one right that hey, was, he also he also did a cover of california girls that's right okay well there you go and, um, you know, and then Sammy Hagar is just the living embodiment of a, that six foot tall frozen slushy drink you can get in Las Vegas. <laughs> he like, is, you, yeah, he is the extra shot that you can get in it. Yeah. You know, like that, dr Cantina. <laughs> that drink is literally like, you know, it's a, a tube that's six feet tall that contains, you know, 12 and a half ounces of actual liquid in it. And, the, you know, it's all ice. It's... um. It's a didger it's, un, it's unfulfilling. It's, it's a didgeridoo <laughs> filled with yeah. some sort of alcohol. <laughs> but I don't know. You know, Van Halen is this band that's like, oh, are are you into like the David Lee Roth years or the Sammy Hagar years? I'm into none of the years. And I just can't believe that like they keep wanting Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth to keep coming back. And like, aren't these guys like great guitarists? And you feel like they're they're kind of um, held back in a certain way by being dependent on the lead, the lead singer in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, they, I was going to say they tried to go the let's bring in somebody from the from who's was successful. Well, I guess they did it with Hagar too, but the, the Gary Sharon era kind of mm -hmm. proved that you needed to have some sort of 
personality is the front person, whether hmm. that person that per that personality is a frozen margarita or, <laughs> in David Lee Roth's case, some sort of like aging Lothario type thing. Whatever he what his his sub Steven Tyler uh, act at this point, hmm. but at least it's personality, which Gary Sharon had. He was the guy from Extreme. That's what he was. He was the more than words guy. Yeah. You know, that's all he was. And he had no personality. And that's a, a band that it relies on like 95% personality and 5% musicianship. Not to discount the musicianship, but have you guys heard the outtakes of David Lee Roth recording the vocals for Running with the Devil? <laughs> just the screams and the DLR it's just all, uh, syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 10 seconds of silence and all of a sudden. Oh! Yeah! I've heard, I've heard the version of Jump that is without the music, and it's just as, uh, just as ridiculous. Oh, it's great. David Lee Roth is so ridiculous. I, I, I myself am more of a Van Halen fan. I, twelve-year-old me, thought the album title "For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge" <laughs> was the funniest <laughs> thing in the world because it spells out "fuck you guys." <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I think I saw them on their third tour, and David Lee Roth was kind of in peak Roth form. I don't know if Crazy from the Heat had come out yet, but what makes me, what gives me some sympathy for David Lee Roth is two things. Uh, when we talk about the auspices in which a lead singer can uh, depart from a band, sometimes it's because they go on to a, an amazing career, uh, solo career, which David Lee Roth did. I think sometimes it's because, and there's another band that I'm thinking of, it's because they're a hired gun. They got hired to be the front man. And David Lee Roth was a victim of, I think, his success in that job, in that here's the, here are these two virtuotic musicians in the Van Halen Brothers. And this, this business of Van Halen is their namesake. And they need a guy, as they called David Lee Roth, to bring the disco, to to bring the uh, peacockery, this kind of thing that they knew that uh, Mick Jagger delivered to this blues outfit, the Rolling Stones. And so he did that, I think, to a T. But you got to think at the whole time, he, he knows it's not his band. It doesn't have his name on it, you know? <laughs> so I kind of, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of feel for the dude. And there's this, um, have you seen, there's Ted Templeman put out this book about a producer's a platinum producer's life and music where he talks about even seeing them in 77 he wanted sammy hagar he was looking at this guy david lee roth on stage and saying his presence on stage was awkward his singing wasn't that great um he thought he just seemed too nervous he seemed like he was trying too hard on stage and knew of this band called Montrose and this guy named Sammy Hagar. So this might be revisionist history because um, these um, big egos, these producers have big egos too, and they don't go back and, and tout their mistakes. They tout their genius in these, these, uh, these books. But he said the, the band's biggest issue was David Lee Roth. Um, his train whistle screams were, were ultimately identifiable in a good way, he said. Um, and he was such a distinctive singer. He, even though he would sometimes get pitchy or miss a note, he thought that this stuff would out, the good outweighed the bad. But um, I, I do think of David Lee Roth as this guy whose ego knows no bounds. Like just to hear this guy talk, he's just in the business of selling DLR. But, <laughs> but who else? Sometimes I think about David Lee Roth as the William Shatner of of cock rock hair metal because uh, <laughs> Shatner yeah. had the audacity and swagger to sell sci-fi in prime time only for a couple of years, but he could do it. He took this nerdy genre that had outlived its welcome and never really found a big place on television. And, uh, well, Jeff, you know, I think, I think tech wars was on for like five <laughs> seasons. So please. Yeah. But as much as uh, is funny because David Lee Roth's also his arrogance and his ego somehow was even too big for MTV at that time, which is so ridiculous. <laughs> like, I don't, can't even understand it. Um, but yes, that is, if we were going to pick an obvious thing, I think that would have been it. 
that tends to be one of the things that we, I think we've shied away from recently, especially, you know, having other um, guests on the podcast. Um, so it's nice that we're, um, yes, you know, just uh, opening, eating the first cookie out of the bag. I guess yeah. I don't know where that metaphor it's, went. That was I terrible. Don't know. Yeah, that was bad. Scrub. I eat all the cookies. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So um, that means Michael, you are off. No, Richard, you are off to your second choice. Am I right? Yes, I am off to okay. my second choice, okay. and that second choice is Phil Collins replacing Peter Gabriel in Genesis. Oh, awesome. Okay. And the reason I chose this one is because. I think it's a rare example of a uh, lead singer change that actually wound up benefiting all parties concerned. Yeah. Um, you know, Peter Gabriel had kind of gotten tired of, of being a, the lead singer of a band and, and just wanted to do his own kind of weird art pop thing. And so he got a chance to do that. And he obviously went on to have this amazing solo, diverse, incredible solo career. Meanwhile, they, they're looking for singers after he leaves. And eventually they go, well, the drummer can sing a little bit. Why don't we give him a shot? Yeah. And yeah. then wound up going from this somewhat successful kind of cult art rock band mm -hmm. to for a couple of years stretch there, arguably the biggest band in the world. Yeah. I read, I read that um, Phil Collins specifically had the most number one uh, – u.s singles in all of the 80s like if you can if you count like just his um if you count his genesis stuff and you count his solo work and i think it was counting something else he had like he's like the most popular or had like the most he was like one of the not necessarily the best-selling artists but he had like the most number one singles in the 1980s and that's wild to think that it's phil collins yeah, yeah. he is he is the ultimate sort of guy right like mm -hmm. you just look at him and you don't you don't see anything particularly he's not a handsome guy he's not a, a flashy guy he's not necessarily the best singer although i think he's probably a little underrated as a singer myself that's just my opinion um you know some of the solo some of the later genesis and his solo stuff kind of turns into schmaltzy crap um uh, but the earlier stuff is fantastic you know the stuff that's on duke face value some of that sort of stuff is really really some of the not not just in the writing and the music but the way it was produced as well kind of introduced that kind of big drum sound that you wound up yeah. uh, hearing throughout the 80s. the compressed drum sound that i think he invented accidentally like playing through the t talk back mic right. or something crazy like that yeah yeah it was it was a total fluke that it wound up happening but uh steve lillywhite and hugh batcham the producer and engineer wound up making a career off of basically just reproducing that that sound mm -hmm. do you think his uh, and genesis's transformation uh was a matter of like going from prog rock art rock they needed to have um their lead thespian in in the band, Peter Gabriel, move on, and then they kind of evolved into a more pop sound. Was it kind of his success was almost their band's success at changing with the times, or even anticipating the times a little bit? Yeah, I, I definitely. I remember watching a documentary about Genesis ten years ago, probably, so, and I do remember the other two guys in the band, Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford basically saying the same thing, you know, that they, they could only go so far kind of ha having the lead singer dress, I'm paraphrasing here, but having the lead, lead singer dress up as a daisy on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes at some point they just wanted to be a rock band or a pop mm -hmm. rock band and, and kind of explore what they could do in that sort of idiom. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating to me as a, a an extra in a hard day's night as Phil Collins was, right. there were so many musicians whose careers were ripples of the Beatles' uh, impact. The, the cannon blast that was heard around the world of Beatlemania created so many guys who just wanted to pick up a guitar and do pop songs, but because of the 60s, it all turned into this uh, art, rock, you know, psychedelia, 
all these other things uh, that the, actually the Beatles kind of pushed um, happened. And it's so funny that they all just kind of eventually came back to pop. Yeah, yeah. no. Yeah. I, yeah, totally agree. I, I, I just look at Phil Collins, and I, I, I'm trying to think what I remember him most by. I think it's the fact that he had a, they actually had an NBC special for his, I think it was No Jacket Required album where they de debuted like several of the music videos and it was all kind of wrapped around this very flimsy storyline. And mm -hmm. one of them involved him wrestling the ultimate warrior. <laughs> and it's just like, you'll never have anything. And it's all as kitschy and campy as, as you would expect it to be. And you just, you won't have that anymore. I mean, Beyonce is not going to, you know, wrestling John Cena on yeah. her CBS special or anything <laughs> like that. It was just, it was just a different time, man. There's, I don't see a scenario where someone like Phil Collins could become, like Michael said, arguably the biggest musician of the eighties. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to happen today. And a sex symbol too. There's a, isn't, isn't there a high value placed on, there's a t-shirt of him. I don't forget from which album it was where he's kind of shirtless and he's kind of his dad bod, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, a improbable sex symbol. And this was, I think, also in a pre-integration MTV era where I don't know how much Phil Collins had as far as competition for <laughs> swaggering, um, soulful, um, leading man on MTV back back then. And I'll, and I'll just close with the fact that Easy Lover, even though it's not a Genesis, Genesis song, is an absolute and complete fucking banger. Yeah. Just leaving it with that. Yeah, that's a good good capper. Okay, uh, Winfield, what's your shoot? Uh, where does it leave us? That's your second I'm a number choice, two. Winfield. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I don't mind getting shot down. Um, but it is uh, Joy Division being replaced by New Order with basically the, the entire band just kind of changing their name and having um, Bernard Sumner take over as lead vocals. Um, after the death of Ian Curtis. And I say this uh, for two reasons. One, um, they feel intrinsically linked as almost the same band, especially since the first song that New Order put out as their first single was like one of the last songs that uh, Joy Division or Ian Curtis had um, written, a song called Ceremony. So they felt like it feels like the band was honoring their kind of previous existence. And then also that it was just such a, I mean, what a, what a, I don't know, a shock. It's, it's not, it doesn't quite feel the same as like the Foo Fighters, uh, you know, Dave Grohl starting his own thing and taking off after uh, Kurt Cobain killed himself but it had some of the same vibes, but Foo Fighters very much didn't feel like mm, Nirvana part two, but yeah. a new order kind of feels like it had all of the same roots and all of the same um, emotions, but with like a synth and kind of a, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a robotic drive to it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I just think there's such a very, uh, it's weird. This band, you know, Joy Division, I like, but New Divor New Order, I really like. I think that they wrote um, just maybe just the longevity had such a a more massive um, um, selection of songs. Although I don't think that there's ever still been a song written better than Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I I was thinking about this one a lot, and I couldn't I couldn't really. I can't really divest the two and it feels like they're all kind of two sides of the same coin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like new orders built on the, is the uh, first floor built on the foundation or of joy division. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think so I think there's, it feels like they're, they're so part of the same thing. It would be like if the band was called, um, uh, Hayland van or yeah. something like they just changed that it was it felt very much the same but then you know three of the four members remained in the band they just brought on um 
another keyboardist. And I don't know, for for Joy Division to be halted so abruptly and the new order to be started pretty pretty much mm-hmm. you know, within almost a year, it I don't know, it feels like it it didn't really skip a beat. So you knew it was a hot take when you kind of came into it because it's a kind of a replacement band, not just a replacement singer, even though it's got the same components to it. Yeah. It's a different name. Yeah. So, it's a... You know, they, they, they weren't necessarily, you know, the, the sound isn't the same, you know, obviously Joy Division has more, um, a lot, you know, obviously a lot more um, punk energy and punk origins. Um, and then New Order is very much, deeply invested in that kind of uh, 80s new wave. But I think a lot of things that had their origins in uh, 70s, the late 70s kind of punk transitioned mm-hmm. into a early 80s new wave. I think yeah. of like The Cure as well as one of those kind of post-punk early new wave bands that yeah. had the same sort of thing. Not that anybody killed themselves to form a different band. Hey, Michael. Yeah. If you could go back in time and you mm. could see either Joy Division or Prime Era New Order in concert, which one would you choose? No, New Order. Really? Yeah, I, I know I don't have I like it, punk has never been my my major thing. It's never like it's I don't know a, a, an in person a live concert. Uh, Joy Division concert doesn't sound sound that great to me, but like the idea of seeing New Order in like 1982 sounds pretty fucking boss. Even if you thought Ian Curtis might have a seizure and that you'd be so cool to see that, I don't think that would be very cool. Okay, all right, all right. Like I uh, like uh, like I would like seeing Depeche Mode in like 1986 would be like fucking awesome. Like right when like that band like right when they were like at the top of the world doing their like 101 tour that seems like that would have been the coolest thing in the uh, Borglum bag we have a tragic as it is circumstance of the passing of the lead singer and what does the band do to pick up the pieces afterwards so uh, that's a little bit of a teaser as we go into our intermission in which we ask you to do us a solid and go back into the archives of the Mount Rushmore podcast and download past episodes. Give them a listen. Give them a rating. Give them a review uh, on iTunes or app, the podcast app. Would really appreciate that if you could do that. And then do us a solid and join us out on the social media handles. We've got Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we invite you to go out there and let us know what topics you'd like to hear us butcher, I mean discuss, and let us know if there are any <laughs> examples of those topics that you think we missed out on. I'm sure it would be fun to hear from you guys and do us a solid also and share it out. Okay, we're going into the second half. Uh, this bag is full. This bag is full. Um, so if anybody picks something from it, I'm, I'm coming after you. Uh, and I think it's Richard's third. Yeah, and I think I'm, well, I don't know that this is exactly who you're thinking uh, of, but this uh, was my third choice. Okay. As Brian Johnson. Yay! Ding, 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 ding! All right. Uh, replacing the late Bond Scott yes. as the singer of ACDC. Yes. Um, what are the odds that they could find a singer with that voice after having a band? fronted by somebody who had almost exactly the same voice yeah <laughs> yeah and 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 such a unique voice at that mm-hmm. um you know look bon how would Scott, you describe that voice whiskey and gravel and whiskey and gravel <laughs> and satan and all kind of rolled into one and, fun her, ball. and, her, and herpes yeah all that <laughs> stuff yeah you know acdc were this fun band that had some pretty moderate sized hits in the u.s were very big in the UK and elsewhere. Bon Scott dies of like, was alcohol poisoning, I believe. Yeah, death by misadventure. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, and they go to find a replacement, and they find it in this lead singer of this band that Bon Scott had seen on stage several years ago, who had been, he said, sounded like Little Richard. Yeah. Which I don't know, or sings in the style of Little Richard, I think mm-hmm. was the uh, Bon Scott's phrase. 
So they said, well, if it's good enough for Bon Scott to like him, maybe he'll be a good replacement. And he only comes in and helps to write and record the second biggest album of all time. Yeah. I mean, that's when you're talking about hitting above your, your expectations, that's about as good as you can get. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, how many, I mean, they, they wound up touring for what, probably 30 some odd years with Brian Johnson as their lead singer. Yeah. And to the point where there are probably a whole generation of fans who just don't even, who don't know that there was an original lead singer who mm -hmm. just associate ACDC with Brian Johnson. Yeah. I think that also there's a timelessness to the ACDC because I think Angus was confronted by an interviewer who leveled the criticism that they'd made the same album 11 times and he corrected it and said, no, we made it 12 times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I can suspect that one who grew up in the Brian Johnson era would not even know that the past tracks were Bon Scott because the voice is similar enough that, uh, that a, a fan might not, not even know. Um, th this is another, I think this choice is great because it brings, it ties into two uh, modes in which a lead singer exists when they are replacing someone else. Like you said, the transition of, of uh, Joy Division into New Order uh, was right in recognition of their past. And I felt like Back in Black was definitely a eulogy somewhat for Bon Scott. So there was such a sense of respectfulness towards the history of this band, where they'd been, um, but the fact that they're back. They may be wearing black, but they're back. So acknowledging their past. And at the same time, Brian Johnson got kicked out of that band unceremoniously three, four years ago. He did have hearing loss, but he got replaced with asshole <laughs> Axel Axel Rose. Rose. Yeah. And it reminds me that if you're in a, unless your name is Van Halen, you're a temporary hire in the band. Unless your name is Young, you are a temporary hire in ACDC. You are not in the band. You, you could fill out some 1099s, but you're not going to get a W-2. And you're not, you're not really in the band. Um, so here's this guy who wrote part of the lyrics. Yeah, he's back. He, he enters on Back in Black. He was in Geordie. He quits Geordie. Um, I think unlike these uh, Scottish emigres to Australia, they're in, in, in Great Britain and the rest of Europe, Australia is kind of this hinterland. And so the Scots who were transplanted to Australia trying to make it in that market are really kind of oddballs. Well, being a Geordie, you know, like a Newfoundland um, um, of origin, you're the oddball. You're like, you're the, it's kind of the redneck slash like a, it's like being from the prairies in Canada or something like that. So here's this guy who was really kind of a, an outsider too. And they bring him in and he's writing lyrics and he's almost inventing rap on, on this album. And they, yeah. kick, they, they kick his ass out when he's got a little bit of hearing, hearing loss so they could have one last tour, one last tour. So I feel for the dude. Oh, yeah. No, but he seems like I, I saw him on uh, on Top Gear, the British version, yeah. several yeah. years ago. Yeah. And he just seems like somebody who just gets it, understands that he cashed, he, had, he got a lottery ticket and he cashed it. Oh, yeah. And just, you know, nobody rocks a, a newsboy cap as, as well as he does. Yeah. He does hold it down on his head in case it flies off all the time while he's singing. <laughs> I wonder, but, yeah, it just makes you wonder how bald he is. Under yeah, him. how bald, like, Dwight, are we talking Dwight Yoakam bald? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, or is it uh, just, is it, is it just the hat with the hair underneath that's attached to the hat? Yeah. Is it, is it like a Gallagher situation yeah, where he's totally bald? <laughs> and it's taped, the hat, the hair is taped to that. Uh, I love, I love that choice too. And it also, uh, reveals the fact that, as you said, they hired this guy who sounds like Little Richard. I think in his in his audition for, while auditioning new singers for ACDC, they had all these people come in and want to sing what was then being labeled as heavy metal, this heavy rock. And 
Brian Johnson came in and wanted to sing Nutbush, Nutbush Avenue by the Nutbush, Ike Tina Turner Review. Nutbush City Limits, yeah. Nut, Nutbush City Limits. So here's this guy who knew that this outfit, that these four-foot-tall Aussies <laughs> were running, was an R&B outfit that happened to have some kind of pretty heavy guitar licks to it. But uh, I think in, in Brian, they knew, oh, this is the guy. This is the guy for the job. For yeah. sure. Michael Winfield, uh, let us know your third replacement singer. Now, my third replacement singer um, isn't like the best known, but when Gene Terrell took over in 1970 for Diana Ross as one of the singers of in The Supremes, well, you know, they all can't, can't just, be winners. They all can't be winners. You can't be the Supremes. You can't come into Supremes and think they're going to beat the Supremes, especially the other two members of the Supremes when a few years before Diana Ross became Diana Ross in the Supremes. And you know you're just all second fiddle, hangers on. You know who the, um, who the important person in the band is. Yeah. And um, uh, Gene Terrell stayed with um, the Supremes for, oh, another – three years and then they kind of moved on again. Mary Wilson has stayed with the band and Cindy Birdsong uh, for a couple of years. And then Cindy Birdsong left and then she came back with Sherry Payne. And then, you know, once you start doing that rotating door of who are the important singers in the band, the Supremes when number one has left, uh, it, it kind of just goes to show that some, even some great groups are kind of one-man bands, so to speak, in spite of their, you know, kind of um, era-defining sound. I was um, uh, reading a little bit about how in the 60s, in the mid-60s, that happened a lot when, um, you know, the uh, the Miracles became Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, or the Vandells became... Um, uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas or like different things like that. The Temptations um, tried to become David Ruffin and the Temptations, but it didn't quite stand. But uh, Diana Ross and Supreme stood at least for five years. And then before it was time for her to um, just become Diana Ross on her own. And I think that's um, kind of interesting for a band to still carry on for as long as they they could, and then eventually they had to kind of give up the ghost. That's a fascinating pick. I never, never thought of uh, Motown, of kind of vocal groups, um, especially when like there are, there are many vocalists, but be because of the topic, I think of the ways it was phrased, she was she was a replacement. There there was a replacement singer, yeah, but there were many singers in this vocal group. But she was definitely the lead. She was replacing. The lead, yeah. And you know, I'm not familiar enough to know that if um, the if uh, if Gene Terrell took over like lead sing duties, or if it all just kind of got split up between the three of yeah. them. If uh, one would take lead on one song and kind of it would shift around. You know, uh, Richard, you kind of brought it up earlier, um, uh, or maybe it was Jeff. You know, when Beyonce left Destiny's Child. There was no more Destiny's Child in the same way that they thought it would be. I don't know. Did they put out any more albums? I have. To I don't think so. No, Rick. I don't believe they did. It's like when you when you know who the lead singer is, um, you you know. Yeah, you know. I uh, I think also when they would appear on television, Diana Ross was always in the middle, and that gave her so much focus and power. Or she would be in front. If they had the uh, a spotlight, you know, somebody's obviously singing lead. But even if they were called the Supremes, you knew who the star was. And I imagine if you're a marketing person, like a savvy marketing person like Barry Gordy, you're looking for that breakout. Anything that they can latch onto, you're looking for that personality. And I, I imagine at the there were so many chiffons, Shirelles. Um, all, all these, mm -hmm. the crystals, all these different girl groups who had these names that were really kind of um, not interchangeable, but they were superlatives that didn't 
mean that much. So when you found one individual who you could, who could break out or maybe even cross over, that was probably from a marketing standpoint, the most important thing to Barry Gordy was that here we have this person who we can sell to a broader uh, demographic, meaning uh, non-POC. <laughs> White people will, will buy these records. So whatever that guy's got to do to sell. That's funny because it does kind of presage the touring acts that aren't around that much anymore. But if you go to any casino in the United States, you're going to see Phil Johnson's Drifters or yeah. Larry... <laughs> Larry Edwards coasters. Yeah, you'll the see platters. That. You'll see the platters, and it's like they were a '50s band. They've all been dead for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. How is this possible? Yeah, yeah. I remember in like sometime in the early '90s, I went to go see like uh, K Earth 101's, you know, greatest sounds of the '50s and '60s. It was like my first concert that I ever went to over at like the old, um, the old amphitheater, the old Universal Amphitheater before they tore that down. And um, it was just like, you know, it was the tokens and it was every, it was the temptations. It was every band that you'd heard one and a half songs on the radio for, for the last, you know, 30 yeah. years. And I remember being like, I, are, are these the same people? I don't know. <laughs> I was also like, you know, 12 and seeing it. So I also uh, uh, couldn't tell you anything anyway. Yeah. yeah. I remember thinking David Lee Roth when I saw him at Kemper Arena. City. <laughs> he could have been anybody because all I just saw was hair and kicking and like scarves and things like that. There was, you could have been anybody. Uh, that, the July 4th entertainment last night, I forget what channel it was. There was something live from 42nd Street in New York and they had a performance by Black Eyed Peas and Will I Am is there, Apple the App is there, and then Schmergy? I don't know who this woman was, but she wasn't Fergalicious. She was like Barbaralicious or something like that. She she was not. And, but it was funny. She had her kind of hair combed down and big sunglasses on. It was almost like she was embarrassed to be there too. <laughs> like it was it was kind of funny because we we're going. Is that Fergie? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, all right. So it's uh, Richard's last chance. The last dance. Last chance. Last to chance to win. Yeah. Um, so as we've alluded to, they all can't be winners. Sometimes you try to replace somebody and it just doesn't work out. And sometimes it looks like on paper it really should work out and it doesn't work out. Mm, and, I'm intrigued. Uh, this one is the new Luciana Provarati in <laughs> yes for, for Perry Farrell. Yes, uh, no. This one is the new cars fronted oh, by yeah. Todd Rundgren. Yeah. Um, so in 2005, a couple of the members of the Cars, Elliot Easton and Greg Hawks, uh, decided they wanted to get the Cars back together. Um, their drummer had had retired and decided not to come back. Um, and Rick Ocasek declined the opportunity, but they didn't let that um, dissuade them from their plans. No, no, no. They went ahead and got Todd Rundgren, everyone's favorite musical imp. And it, on paper, it should have worked. I mean, I, I guess. I mean, they're yeah. both kind of weird looking. And skinny. they're both skinny, yeah. weird looking, kind of yeah. look like they just crawled out. If they haven't seen the sun in about 20 yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and musically, Todd Rundgren did everything he could to sound exactly like Rick Ocasek. Oh, yeah. If you ever, if you ever got the chance to hear them uh, perform, he is doing a spot-on Rick Ocasek impression, mm -hmm. which he had done, you know, the, his album Deface the Music back, I guess, in the early 80s. Where he had Faithfully done... could do, yeah, he could, he could, he can sound like anybody wants to. Yeah. yeah. So on paper, it should work, but the problem is, Nobody wants to see the cars if they if Rick Ocasek isn't involved. Yeah, it's just it's just it's just as simple as that. And you know you're in trouble whenever you have to refer to yourself as the new something. Yeah. All you can think, all I could think of was was the Spinal Tap, being the the, <laughs> the originals. Then the they were the original. new originals. Yeah. Then they've changed their name. If if it, I don't think the new whatever. Uh, maybe the new Christy Minstrel 
Yeah. So, and then maybe that's the only one that's ever actually worked out. But beyond that, if you're if you're naming yourself the new something something. Well, when they were just order. Trouble. When they were yes. just order, and then they changed the name to New Order. <laughs> that's when that's when you knew. That's when they took off. You know, Rundgren was, I think, on some songwriting podcast, and he said that Okasik was signed on to that tour and then backed out last minute due to health reasons or something. So he just, in his mind, he was stepping in to save the day. Oh, well, unfortunately, Rick can't do it due to health reasons, but the show must go on, right? We've already pre-sold every state fair in the United States. We got, we got to go. So then when Rick Okasik says, Todd Rundgren, you just made my shit list. They said that publicly or like on your, you're on watch. He was, or, I forget he, was, he was on the Colbert report. Was he? Okay. Yeah. yeah and, he, and Colbert asked him if there's anyone he wanted to put on notice. And that's yeah. who he said was Todd Rundgren. <laughs> I love, I love that Biggie and Tupac are being eclipsed by these skinny white producer musicians. God, who wins, who wins in that, who wins in that yeah. fight, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Although I'd like to see it. I'm guessing Todd Rundgren probably wins. Don't yeah. you? Oh, the talent? You mean like the kind no, of... No, an actual, oh, fist, actual, an actual, actual fist, fist fight. My money's on Rundgren. Yeah. He's, yeah. He looks he looks wiry. At wiry. Least. He's like got he's some tall reach. and lanky. Yeah. Yeah. He can just it's snap crazy. a jab out there. Yeah. Uh, between Phil Collins and Todd Rundgren, I don't know who's got the most rock and roll mythology around them. Because didn't Phil Collins have something about witnessing a drowning... Um, well, that's allegedly what uh, allegedly. In the Air Tonight is about, even though yeah. he has said it's not. Uh, okay. But that's what people trying to work out the lyrics have, have tried to claim. And and Todd of... was actually tied up in his home and somebody was singing I Saw the Light as they were robbing his place or something. <laughs> Jeez. That's, that's I, know, I, I know he had a, a feud with John Lennon in the late 70s. Which, if you're actually, if you were actually able to get John Lennon to think you're important enough to feud with, to feud with, then you must be doing something right, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Wow. Um, well, that's a that's a funny. Now, now we're getting into an interesting territory because are are these touring tribute? Oh, don't worry. Fests? We got one more to go. We got one okay. big one to go. But is is that really? A replacement, so, or is it just a, hey, we're just doing this thing. We all know this isn't the real band. We're not going to record together. They they weren't going to record with Todd Rundgren. They made a live album. They did. Oh, okay. Yeah, they made a live album that had an original single, that went mm -hmm. absolutely nowhere. Wow. Mm. Now Rundgren has probably evoked invoke the ire of any Beatle who is living because he's done a lot of Sergeant Pepper shows with like Cheap Trick or something like that, or maybe Cheap Trick did it by himself. But he's done a lot of be live Beatles things too. So, okay, uh, Winfield, what's your final assault? Okay, final listen, assault? and I, I, I just got to preface this by saying this is going to be old hat for both of you. So like if it sounds like I'm just repeating myself, please... I'm sorry, maybe the listeners don't know, but when... If you're going to list 73 Spanish names and say Menudo. No, listen. Okay, in 2014, right. uh, when Odorous Arungus departed this, motor coil, this uh, <laughs> mortal coil only to be replaced by Volvatron, who is only replaced by Blothar the Berserker, is this a you guar? know that oh. this it's, is a guar. <laughs> it's really almost exactly like Van Halen. Yeah, really <laughs> circumstances <laughs> i mean listen we all know the story of odorous Rungan. he's 50 billion years old barbarian creature from the planet scum Doggia. and um you know his dad was a supercomputer his mom was a petri dish <laughs> and when you know when every uh, teenage girl has these posters on her wall <laughs> when uh, odorous Rungus died they brought in volvatron who you know she lactated blood, but it didn't work out with the band. And so they brought in Blothar the Berserker, who was known, you know, before as Beefcake the Mighty in a previous installment of Guar. Uh, this band is everything that I, it, it, I can't believe that at some point in my life I had um, looked down upon this band as nothing more than um, a uh, 
like the guys that you sit next to at like a Raiders game, a home Raiders game. But the idea that they have this such a convoluted um, history and mythology and uh, and that the, like the lead singer was there for like almost 20 years and that they had to, they brought in someone that didn't quite work and then they brought in somebody who was a different person in the band to take on a different personality and all of these moving multiple personalities made me realize oh my god this is this is just this incredible um kind of uh carnival stage show with people in masks and anyone could be anyone at any given point and the fact that someone actually did have to really in real life physically die you know rather than being you know blothar who fashioned his headdress from the spirit of a spectral moon moose and like all of the stuff <laughs> all of the stuff that i that when i was weird doing when it just, you say it yeah i know i know it's it's <laughs> this stuff is you know it's like the stuff we learn in history class like you know george washington chopped down the yeah. cherry tree and yeah. beefcake the mighty was from you know the planet cholesterol where yeah. he Oswald met um, you know alone. yeah yeah mm-hmm, you know um I I love the idea of this band <laughs> that they just slap on a piece of like, you know, foam molded Viking robotic gear onto somebody else. And yeah. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they can all play death metal and play really hard and really fast and just <laughs> sing in a deep voice or a high voice or whatever, but just someone else in a, uh, you know, robot demon headdress comes in and like, you're next, you're next on the guar chopping block of lead singers. <laughs> this is I, love, a, I love the spectacle of it i love yeah. the idea of the spectacle of it and i wish that i would have been into it even even in jest you know 20 years ago mm-hmm. do you think you have interests that are adjacent more adjacent like you you understand the vaudeville and pageantry and of wrestling i do i yeah. said se- i certainly do now you know yeah. You just go down the list of like the people that were, you know, their their stage names, you know, Saw Dog Destructo and Bone Snapper and mm-hmm. the aforementioned, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Sleazy P. Bar- Martini and Joey Slutman. And it's just like, God, these people know what they're doing. All the different <laughs> people that have played Flatuous Maximus. <laughs> I don't even understand how they can play instruments with the all the <laughs> stuff on them. Can you imagine yeah. all the bands that aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or that have made it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but Guar hasn't? <laughs> uh, so that's a good place to end. Good. Um, Thank this you. This podcast. Thank you for ending this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is pretty rad. So what I love about this conversation is it did kind of get into the different auspices in which a uh, lead vocalist for our band is replaced by someone else. They they move up, they move out, they move over. The band changes around them. Um, it's just a maybe music uh, isn't as as primary of the band's interest as it is theater. Um, and that was an interesting uh, aspect, I think, about some of the ones that were chosen. Winfield, a lot of um, it seems like three or four of your choices were. Uh, bands that were kind of known for their stage presence and their enigmatic um, personas on stage and the quality they're in and the show that they put on. Um, And I think uh, the musical transformations were kind of key in some of your choices, Richard. Um, I think more specifically with Phil Collins and Brian Johnson kind of escorting the band into a new era of their um, musical journey. But so cool. So I will say that in the Borgland bag, um, there were, um, there was some things that we didn't mention that I think were kind of interesting is um, Mike Patton uh, in oh, Faith yeah. No More. I mean, I, in some cases of a singer with an immense amount of talent, like Mike Patton is somebody that any lead singer would say, yeah, put him instead of me. We'll sell a million albums because he's such a an amazingly flexible and gifted vocalist, but like uh, Ronnie James Dio coming in after Ozzy and Black Sabbath. Um, And then I was kind of, 
I think we've discussed this guy before on a different um, podcast, but um, Squeeze needed a new keyboard player after Jules Holland leaves, and they bring in Paul Carrick to play keyboards because Squeeze already has two great lead singers. And then they're recording East Side Story, and they've got this leftover song, Tempted. And Elvis Costello says, Paul, you got a good voice. Why don't you sing this? So it becomes this huge hit. <laughs> it kind of eclipses a lot of the rest of the album. So even though he, he got hired as the keyboard player, like Chevy Chase was kind of hired as a writer, he becomes a breakout star and front person, um, at least on the on MTV, but uh, isn't isn't with the band that much afterwards. So, um, yeah, so I, I this, it's a fascinating subject because it also I also am interested in why why we even care about this idiot out front singing when, when there's so many other great musicians in the band who are doing hard work too. So, okay. So I shall choose because we all thought of it, Sammy Hagar, Van Hagar. And uh, that was a super cool pull. Um, never thought about uh, Gene Terrell of uh, the Simpsons. And I really, uh, well, well, uh, the Simpsons, sorry, the Supremes. No. <laughs> 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 Who was the other Oh, there was a Gene on The Simpsons. Uh, it wasn't Gene Terrell, though. Ah, nuts. I'm forgetting it now. Okay. Uh, and then I was fascinated with this because of the, of all the aspects of replacing your lead singer, I never thought of the emotional evolution uh, and how this uh, band built its new sound off the on the foundation of the previous one so i want to go with the um joy division new order um through you know the replacement of ian curtis in that and and because it's brian johnson let's go with brian johnson acdc did i pick five no you got I, four okay well this has uh, been jeff hopkins the al, current al gene is the one you're al gene that's right that's right <laughs> Um, this has been Jeff Hopkins, the current uh, co-host of the Mount Rushmore podcast. I, as always, am Jeff. I, I think I'm Richard. I hope I'm still Michael by the end of all this. 